welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. This week we're going to the Pacific Northwest. It's the 1930s and we have a kidnapping story full of twists and turns. As we retell this story, we want you to think of a black and white movie from the 30s. Angels with dirty faces, James Cagney. Absolutely. In the 1930s, there was a rash of kidnappings in the US. In 1932 alone, there were 3,000 kidnappings. In that same year, Famous aviator Charles Lindbergh and his wife awoke to find their baby Charles Jr. missing. After a series of mysterious ransom notes and an exhaustive investigation, the Lindbergh baby was found two months later in a shallow grave. The Lindbergh tragedy resulted in kidnapping garnering enormous attention. Sarah, just for people who may not know, Charles Lindbergh was probably the most famous man of the day at, at the time. I'm trying to think of who the most famous man is today. And, and so this was an enormous story. And in fact, it resulted in kidnapping across state lines becoming a federal crime, hence the Little Lindbergh Law. It was really the catalyst for J. Edgar Hoover, and the Bureau of Investigation becoming the Federal Bureau of Investigation in 1935. And it also really changed the game, Sarah, because prior to that, criminals had considered kidnapping kind of a low-risk crime. But the Lindbergh Law really changed all that because now it was a capital crime. Really, you're in the Depression, and the Depression gave rise to these sort of famous outlaws like John Dillinger, famous bank robbers. And since banks were seen as sort of predatory, imagine going to the bank today and you go to withdraw your rent money, right? And the bank just says, sorry, there's been a run on money. We have no more money. That's the situation people were in, in the depression. And so these bank robbers were kind of looked at as sort of folklore heroes in some ways because banks were looked at as being predatory. No, people kind of cheered them on. They did. And so these gun-toting gangsters were really revered by the general public and memorialized in films like James Cagney in Angels with Dirty Faces. And actually, Sarah, several of them had been killed or imprisoned the year before this incident takes place. Bonnie and Clyde had been gunned down, Machine Gun Kelly, Babyface Nelson, and several more. And for our younger generation, <laughs> Machine Gun Kelly was not a rapper. He was originally a gangster. Yeah. Okay, I'm just saying. Okay. Yes, that's where he got the name. He's not original. <laughs> Even though he's totally hot. 
So why was there this rash of kidnappings at the time? So this country had just gone through the Great Depression, like we had said. So there were so many people just like cast into poverty. It was just like dust bowl hunger in this country. Yeah, and you have to remember there were no social services then. None. People now, there's food stamps, there's welfare. None of that existed then. If you didn't have anything to eat, you had nothing to eat. There were some soup lines in some cities. But but no government programs as we have them today. And then by contrast, you still had this immense robber baron wealth. And these high-profile families became targets. And in this case, the target was wealthy lumber barons, the warehousers. So we're really indebted to author Brian Johnston, who wrote Deep in the Woods, and he really unearthed this incredible story that chronicles the twists and turns of the warehouser kidnapping. Absolutely. And we'll attach a link on our sites and social media for this book because it's completely worth reading. Oh, wonderful book. Absolutely. Wonderful book. Let's talk about the warehousers. Let's talk about the warehousers. Well, they were definitely an interesting family. And this is kind of a contrast for us, Sarah. We're used to seeing East Coast wealth. It's a little different here. It is. Timber Baron Frederick Warehouser was one of the richest men in America. Still is, Laura. He is still the 12th richest man in America. And just to give some perspective on that, Bill Gates is the 11th. Amazing. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? So indeed, he struck gold during the Gilded Age, but I'll tell you what, he did not start out that way. He came to the U.S. in 1852 from Germany with little more than what he was carrying. I love this. This always astonishes me about this country and really still does. Oh, it's a, I love know? this. And this is really what people mean by the American dream. The warehousers are now multi-lineage at Yale University. And there's a chair in their name at the Yale School of the Environment. But let's tell our listeners how they ended up that way. Well, I just want to add that I think Frederick wasn't college educated. And I just think it's so cool that he amassed his fortune and he wanted his descendants to go to Yale. And And they they have. have. More than gone to Yale. They've made a mark at Yale. And, you know, when we first started looking into this Yale connection, we kind of said, Laura and I both looked at each other and we're like, why Yale? And why Yale School of Environment? Sarah said, why not Harvard? (laughs) (laughs) I always ask that question. I said, why not Miami? (laughs) So it seems so ironic to me that a timber company plays a significant role in Yale's environmental school. But the warehouser company actually really believes in like reforesting and they take a a totally environmental approach to the lumber business. They work with the Nature Conservancy. They're really, I'm so impressed. It's okay. We have to mention Kevin Jang. And so Kevin was a grad student in this program at Yale and he was shot senselessly earlier this year. And we covered his murder in a bonus episode in February. And I really urge our listeners to listen and keep his memory alive. And he was a grad student in the same program. Exactly. In the, exactly. In the forestry program at Yale. But why Yale for the warehousers? So Yale had a well-established school of forestry in the late 19th century. So I think that when the warehousers were kind of looking for a place to donate money and to sort of start a Yale legacy, it just matched. 
Was this some backdoor mission stuff, Sarah? <laughs> it's very cool. This is one of the things I love about the research doing this podcast is all the things we learn. I love it. And the, like we said, like, okay, so Frederick Warehouse really started out modestly, though. He was a brewer, which a lot of German immigrants actually were. And so Warehouser came to this country and he was going to start a brewing company. It was a skill that a lot of German immigrants had when they came to this country. And he said, I love this. He said he got out of it because he said a brewer becomes his own best customer. <laughs> Frederick soon bought a bankrupt mill and he revolutionized the way lumber was processed and mass produced it. With his newfound wealth, Frederick made a deal and purchased 900,000 acres of land. That's a massive amount of land. This was the largest private land sale in America and only increased the family's dynasty. To date, the company owned 7 million acres across America. And how many in Canada, Sarah? 14 million in Canada. And as you mentioned, they are still represented on the Forbes list. And what I thought was very interesting, and, and as I mentioned, we haven't seen this as much in the East Coast, is that Frederick was a very unassuming man. And although he appreciated what wealth brought him and comforts, he absolutely hated the spotlight. So he was looking around at the Vanderbilts and the Carnegies and the Astors, and he was absolutely happy to let them take the spotlight. He liked kind of being low-key and out of the spotlight, and he did not believe in garish displays of wealth. Sarah and I just went to Newport, so we're very familiar with garish displays of wealth that were being displayed around this time. So this was kind of a different attitude for this time period. Absolutely. And just to give an example, the warehousers decided to live in Tacoma, and Tacoma was really sort of like the backwater of Seattle at this point. It was not a big place. It was out of the way. Really, John or JP and Helen Warehouser's wealth may have made them feel safe from the world around them and they're living in Tacoma, but there really was a growing concern for wealthy families at this time. And as we said, that was kidnapping. But isn't that an ongoing theme here at Ivy League Murders is that wealth or education or your surroundings are going to make you safe and they really don't. They can't. No, they can't. So on May 24, 1935, their nine-year-old son, George Warehouser, disappeared somewhere between his school and his house. And like Sarah, we mentioned, they were a very low-key family. The kids walked to school. Yes, Once exactly. in a while, they got a ride with the chauffeur, who was also the cook. This was not a family that had bodyguards or anything They like didn't that. think they needed them. For the amount of wealth they had, they really didn't. And so when the warehousers figured out that George hadn't come home, his father, J.P., contacted the police. That same evening, the family received a ransom demand for $200,000 in unmarked small bills. And they received a note, and there was a, like a little signature from George on the back of the note. So they really knew that the kidnappers had George, that they meant business, and so, Laurie, generally, you're sort of our human calculator. How much is $200,000? How much is that in today's it's money? about $3.8 million. So close to $4 million. Right. So, right. I mean, they were a very wealthy family, but they didn't just have $4 million laying, around. laying around their house. And by the way, as Johnston points out, it's four times the amount that was demanded in the Lindbergh kidnapping. And they gave the warehouses a generous five days to gather this money together. I have to pause and point out that 
because kidnapping was punishable by death, there had been a rash of kidnappings that had just ended up with the body ending up in a ditch. You can't imagine the terror, because think about it. If you return the victim, that's much riskier than taking the ransom money and killing the victim. You don't have a live witness anymore. They can't identify you. It breaks off all kinds of leads to you. So their level of fear must have been huge. And so this is what you are dealing with as a family with your nine-year-old son gone missing. And a nine-year-old can definitely identify the perpetrator. So this is definitely a fear with George that he may not make it back alive. So the newly formed FBI gets involved. And really, there's a specter of the Lindbergh case in the background. It's casting a shadow. This is such a high-profile case. And so the kidnappers communicate with J.P. Warehouser through personal ads in the local newspaper using the name Percy Minnie. And the whole idea is such an odd name. I really looked into, of course, I'm such a crime nerd. I had to look into what Percy Minnie, I couldn't find any connection they really, to. I know, and we... I don't yeah. think it had any meaning. Right, and they also signed the ransom note, Egoist, Egoist, which mm -hmm. I found very interesting. Right. No, exactly. Just kind of these random names. I think they were trying to appear more intelligent than really than they were. I'm not sure. But in any case, so there's this mysterious kidnapper or kidnappers. So JP is instructed to check into a hotel under an alias. So he checks into the hotel with his brother and they just sort of sit there and they await instructions. So they're supposed to put personal ads in and say when the money's ready, correct? And wait. And like, let the kidnappers know once they have the money together and proceed from there. This and is how this is the means of communication. Exactly. Okay. Because I guess at that time, that would have been the best way to do it without them getting caught. So this is what they do. And then I guess they finally put one in that says we have the money together. You have the money together. So check into this hotel. So there's just in this hotel kind of awaiting instructions. And meanwhile, in the background, the FBI was casting a huge net. The kidnappers had asked for unmarked bills in small denominations. So what the FBI were doing was... They were writing down the serial numbers of every bill. Now, Sarah, these are small bills. So these are 20s and 10s and 5s. This took 4,000 man hours. And they had to do this in a week. It felt five days. So they basically just had FBI agents working around the clock doing this. And for JP, of course, he's thinking that the money is not a priority. Getting his son George back is the priority. In fact, in these dealings, the FBI had said, like, hey, let us tell you, we'll catch these guys. And JP was the father was like, No way, do not tell me. Right. I absolutely you know? not. I mean, he's not concerned with catching them. He just wants his child back. And by the way, the warehouses, of course, wanted to keep this quiet, but the press is going crazy with the story. They get wind of it. Is this the next Lindbergh? You have to understand about the Lindbergh case at the time. This was the O.J. Simpson case of the time. In the Lindbergh case, it was the investigation. It was the trial of Richard Hauptman. Hauptman eventually ends up being tried, convicted, and executed. But every second of that case was recorded by the media. And a lot of people still don't think he did it. So, it's, I mean, this is a case that people are still writing books about, still talking about. So, you know, it really was a very big deal. 
I'm going to throw this out there. Okay, so one thing I was thinking of too is that the warehousers were of German extraction. Think about it, it's 1935, Hitler is coming to power, and there's all sorts of anti German sentiment in this country. So I'm wondering if there weren't some maybe thought that this was a political kind of nationalistic move on somebody's part, or if that was part of the thinking at all. Yeah, I think that's a reach, Sarah. I don't see our uh, kidnappers as political operatives. Perhaps because of who the warehousers were, though, as a family, a very wealthy, prominent family, J. Edgar Hoover He was the director of the newly minted FBI. And so Hoover really had something to prove, it seems. So he poured an enormous amount of resources towards capturing the kidnappers. And at this time, everyone thought that there was a guy named Creepy Carpus who was... (laughs) I love these names. I love the names. We don't give criminals names like this. (laughs) We really should, too. I mean, Carpus was one of the few outlaws who was actually still alive and out there at the time. He ran around with Ma Barker's crew. (laughs) But he was Hoover's arch enemy. And so Hoover had such impetus to solve this case. He was in the spotlight. This was kind of the first major case of the FBI. It was like there was so much pressure to solve this case. ego and spotlight the warehouse's money i think might have been what made in power what made this such a huge case as well to who and the media attention attention yeah we loved the spotlight and it was a big it was a very big case it was so i think i have the date right on this i'm not sure if i do but i think by may 28th or may 29th jp and his brother are at the hotel they're awaiting instructions and The kidnapper's method was to contact JP at the hotel through a note delivered by a taxi with instructions. So the instructions were this. They wanted them to go to a remote stretch of road and pick up further instructions to go to another place in the road. What happens, though, is they go to this place in the road, they pick up the instructions, they go to the second place, and there's no instructions. I can't imagine the level of terror for JP and Helen, the entire family. I mean, just, uh, I've like lost my child once for five minutes at an event and and had In a grocery store. Right. I can't even imagine this. And And he's with strangers. You have no no idea idea. if these people are hardened criminals, if he's already, you know, the only assurance that they had that George was not dead was that the kidnappers actually had George write them little notes and letters and stuff like that, too. Right, but, you you know, know. the reality is many of these cases do turn out so tragically. Yeah, and and you don't know when when that note was written. It could have been the very first day. So they get back to the hotel, and they're crestfallen. They think, that's it, George is going to be dead. And so an anonymous calls JP in the hotel and tells him he didn't follow the instructions. And JP protests. He's like, look, we tried, but there were no second set of instructions. So the next day, they try again. Look, this is before cell phones. This is a one-line telephone. This is how it was done, though. This was sort of textbook kidnapping. You, You send instructions to go to one place, that those instructions send you to another place. And again, they don't know whether this is a network 
of 20 people as part of this kidnapping ring. They have no idea if this is one person, if this is many people, if this is a whole cabal of people. Are they watching the hotel? This is why JP did not want them followed. So the next day, they attempt again to connect with the kidnappers. And again, they drive to a remote area in the highway. They find another set of instructions to go to the next stop. The final instructions tell Warehouser to leave his car with the money in it. Mind you, this is like, he's got like a big bag of money. It weighs about 40 pounds. Yeah, that it's a very cumbersome bag. But they say, leave his car with the money in it, leave the dome light on, and walk back to Seattle. So they tell him that George will be returned within 30 hours. So he does just that. He's walking away from the car. He's about 100 yards away, I think. And the kidnappers hop in the car and they drive away. Can you imagine now they're just absolutely left to wait? The money's gone. They don't have their son. And now it's just out of their hands. They just have to see if he's returned. And what happened, Sarah? I don't think we should say. <laughs> I think we'll... we'll uh, just leave it there. Let's just leave it there. We'll just leave him hanging. No, just kidding. So then we thank God the kidnappers release George. And he is dropped off on a remote timber road, ironically probably owned by the warehousers. And he's given a dollar and a blanket and told to wait for his father, that his father will be there in two hours. So it is raining. It is cold. He has spent days probably terrified out of his mind. But you got to love George. George just seems like he's just such a strong character. He waits for a little while and he says, nobody's coming for me. I know it. And he starts walking. It's raining. It's cold. And he wanders onto a farmyard. There's a farmhouse. And this is about five or six o'clock in the morning. And he's freezing cold and he knocks on the door and he basically says, I'm George Warehouser. And mind you, this has been all over the front pages. This has been huge news. He says, I'm George Warehouser. Can you please get me back to my family? And this wonderful family of farmers take him in and they give him a hot bath and a hot meal and clothes. And I just like, oh. So he's safe. Thank God. People just absolutely rejoice. And if you think back to Elizabeth Smart being returned alive, when people are used to so many terrible stories like we are now when we watch the news, when you get a great story, when something doesn't turn out tragically, I mean, we just see all these horrendous stories, people just rejoice. So it's not until George comes home that we really find out what happened. And what happened was George was taking a shortcut from school when a guy with a mustache asked him for directions and then grabbed him. And in the car, there was a second man and they drove for a bit and the kidnappers put a blindfold on him and they walked him through a field and put him in a hole, like a grave, Sarah. This is basically a grave they had pre-dug with some boards at the bottom and they put leg irons on him. So he's basically, this is really scary. You think he's nine years old. You're in a round hole. This is terrifying. They then rethink this and move him to another hole, I think, because they hear campers around the area and they're afraid he'll be discovered. And then eventually they move to a house and put him in the closet. And along the way, they have him sign a few things to reassure his family that he's still alive. 
But poor George, he just seems like he's this really cool kid. And But, you know, the kidnappers do assure him that he'll be returned. And I think because he's so young, he actually believes them. And then this keeps his hope alive and his spirit alive. So he actually seems less traumatized by this than one would think. What's funny, too, is that the returning of George, there's a couple of different stories with this. I had read, and I'm not sure of like the truthfulness of this, there was a reporter that intercepted the farmer when the farmer is driving George back to yeah. his family. And the reporter kind of basically flags down the farmer. He knows it's a farmer because of driving a pickup truck. And he sees the farmer with George in the passenger seat. And he's like, hey, okay, give the boy to me. Thanks, Mr. Farmer. And so I don't know if this is true, but my God, the gall of this reporter to kind of get the (laughs) scoop of the story if it is true. I mean, I think he should be charged with kidnapping or should have been. Anyway, so suffice to say, though, George becomes a total celebrity after his return. I mean, crazy celebrity. Right, like Elizabeth Smart did. And I think, you know, in a different way, I mean, she faced more abuse and stuff like this. But people just wanted to follow his what he was doing every day and how he was. And, and they really got like what George was having for breakfast after he got back. They would take pictures of George with his friends and also like these sort of really hammed up stories about poor Georgie can't go out and play like other kids now since we have to protect him. It's really funny. The coverage from the 30s, it's all 30s lingo and everything like that. So, And he really did have the best spirit. Oh, he did. Which actually we can talk about later, but it stays with him. So then we go to the investigation. Okay. And who are these kidnappers? (laughs) Are these some brilliant mastermind criminals that pull off this huge amount of ransom? They're out there. They've got all this ransom money in small bills. And so I think it is hilarious that it didn't take long for one of them to visit a Woolworths, which was like a department store at that time. I actually remember going to Woolworths. Oh, better. <laughs> Shh, Laura, quiet. Keep that down. But one of the kidnappers goes to Woolworths with a $5 bill, and she encounters a savvy saleswoman who checked the serial number. Remember, they wrote down all the serial numbers of the bill, and that saleswoman calls the police. I think the saleswoman should get an award. I do Because too. I have worked in retail for a long time and I don't know what kind of saleswoman would take, go in the back and go, th- I mean, I know they're, they were sequential, but to go through on a $5 bill and look at the serial numbers was pretty big move on her part. And she caught well, one of the kidnappers. That's of true. It. But kudos to the FBI because what they had done is they had released all those serial numbers, but you have no idea. These kidnappers could be anywhere in the country. And so they released these serial numbers to train stations, to department stores, to post offices. They went all over the place. And essentially, everybody was aware of this warehouse or kidnapping. They wanted to catch these people. So they just cast an immense net. Okay, Laura, so who are these masterminds? Well, I wouldn't call them masterminds, Sarah, but the ringleader was a guy named Bill Denard. He also went by Bill Mahan, and I'm probably pronouncing both last names wrong, but they were both aliases, and he had many aliases, so we're just going to call him Bill. <laughs> so Bill was kind of a hardened criminal. He was a bank robber, and he actually met Harmon Whaley, 
was more of a small town criminal in prison. They became friends. And then a while later, when they were both out of prison, they kind of hooked up again. And Harmon had nothing going on. I think he had about $6 to his name. And he was newly married to a woman named Margaret. Now, Sarah, she was, how old was she, 19? She was a young, very, very naive Mormon girl. I'm going to also add, Sarah, that Bill was really handsome. Very sculptured face, dark hair. He's very charismatic as well. Yeah. And Harmon, kind of more plain, cute, but kind of a plainer looking guy. And I think Bill was definitely the alpha in the game. De- definitely yeah. the alpha. And Margaret, probably, I'd say a little dowdy. So unbeknownst to poor innocent Margaret, these two guys are sitting around kind of looking for a score, Sarah, when Margaret innocently relays to them that the warehouse or patriarch has passed away, and their eyes just lit up with the dollar signs because they're thinking, there's got to be some grandchildren that maybe we can kidnap one of and make a big score. I had read, too, that they were planning a kidnapping of someone else, and he ended up not having any money. So <laughs> so this like opportunity falls into their lap. Absolutely. And so they start to do some surveillance and they start to watch George and George has a brother, which works out great for them because they decide that either one of them will do. And so this is kind of a crime of opportunity. They wanted to kidnap somebody. They, they see this great doll around. They see the accessibility of getting George or his brother and they go for it. They get very, very lucky. So as they kept George and moved him around, Harmon Whaley was the one who kept an eye on George. Bill was sort of more of the point man who would go back and forth with the warehousers and pick up the ransom money and that kind of thing. Right. And that was his role in the kidnapping. And we should point out that once Margaret is caught at Woolworths, she gives up her husband and they both give it up right away and they talk and they don't hold anything back. And Bill gets wind of this and he is actually recognized by a police officer who has arrested him on a prior offense. Yes, actually a so, few years beforehand. Right. And Bill thinks he's been recognized as a kidnapper and tries to run from this police officer. That's not why he recognized him. So he's, he's a little paranoid, but he, he manages to evade the police for another year, Sarah. I know. And here's what I don't understand. If I'm in Bill's position, okay, why do you not take your share of the money, okay, which is close to $2 million, go down to Mexico Okay, and your whole life is margaritas and senoritas, and you live the happy life. I don't get it. Well, Bill, Why? Didn't, Bill didn't go to Harvard like you. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't make the best decision. Are you saying I'm a better criminal mastermind than Bill Mahan? Well, you you might be if you were going to plan something, because Bill wouldn't make such good choices, Sarah. Because on May 6, nineteen thirty six, he would be caught at a bank changing some of these unmarked bills. But let me stop you there, Laura. Okay, these were unmarked bills, but like we said, they had serial numbers, but Bill had figured out that they had caught them by the serial numbers. Probably it was released in the press or, you know, I can't remember. Oh yeah, this was, I mean, this is a time period when cities had, some cities had six newspapers a day. So this would have been everywhere. 
So Bill had changed some of the serial numbers, but they <laughs> caught him because he was trying to, because he oh, had changed what a, some what of the Oh, what a bad series. mistake. He tried to launder some of the money. And so they catch him. And the, actually, they end up recovering a lot of the money, the majority of the money. Not all of the money. Not all of the money. So where that money went, I, I'm assuming Bill lived kind of large for the year he was out. And that's where a lot of the money went. And they did not get the death penalty, these kidnappers, but they did get a total of 135 years altogether. I do think Margaret was, what I read about Margaret kind of broke my heart. The good Mormon wife, she doesn't want her husband doing time while she's free. So she essentially pleads guilty to nothing. I mean, the, the woman was like, not really a part of this. She wasn't part of this plan. She didn't even know. She's kind of an unwitting. Right. Uh, she yeah. was kind of an unwitting witness to this. Exactly. I mean, she didn't know about the kidnapping until it was almost over. She definitely. She divorces him <laughs> right after getting out of prison. But I have to say, okay, Harmon Whaley wrote to George Warehouser from prison several times apologizing for his actions. So and then gave it up for him. Absolutely. You know? And come to find out that he was actually had shown George some kindness. Yes. During the kidnapping. Exactly. Like we said, Harmon Whaley was kind of his, the gatekeeper for George. He was the one who would watch him in the house and that keep an eye on George while Bill was the kind of the point man. So right. he was kind to right. him. Right. He was not brutal. He man. wasn't brutal. He didn't hit him. He didn't. So And he had remorse. He definitely had remorse for his actions and expressed those in, in subsequent years when he was in prison. And as we've mentioned, Brian Johnston, who is the author of a book on the subject, the book's name is Deep in the Woods. This is about the warehouser kidnapping. Had an interview with George, who was 94 at the time. George apparently is still alive. He's 96. Amazing. He sounds like a wonderful man. Oh, he definitely sounds like a wonderful man. So his George and his brother would go on to attend Yale, like we said, and take over the lumber business. I guess I think George was like 32 when he took over as president of, of the warehouse or company. I love it. And in an interview with George, Johnston learned an extraordinary twist in this story. But we promised Brian that we would not give this away. So you're just going to have to get the book. And it's a wonderful book. Yes, you're going to have to get the book to see how it all unfolds in the end. The uh, surprise ending with George, but George is still alive. He, he, Sarah, he really wound up relatively unscathed from this whole affair. I mean, he. You, you kind of get the sense that he, like, it kind of made his life more interesting. <laughs> you know, I don't know. You know, absolutely. Well, you know, fortunately, he didn't suffer any severe. I mean, obviously, that was a very traumatic experience, but he didn't. Fortunately, they weren't. They weren't abusing him or, or, you know, there was nothing really barbaric going on. So he fortunately didn't have to suffer from that. But he seems to have really recovered from it and have a pretty decent perspective over the whole thing. Indeed. And, you know, it's really, really so nice to bring our listeners a story with an ending that is happy. I can't say happy ending because that's <laughs> been ruined for, uh, but you but know. But it is a happy ending because, because George survived and the family got him back and they were able to live their lives as a family. And we rarely get to bring you stories like that. 
So it, it really is it is a happy story, and we very rarely get to bring those. It's true, but tune in next week because we'll I'm sure we'll have a story full of doom and gloom <laughs> and murder and mayhem for you. So thank you. It's been a well, total blast. And before we go, I want to give a, a few shout outs. I wanted to shout out to one of our group members, Gemma, who I've been chatting with and having a great time chatting with in the UK, and our new researcher. Nate. Nate Bartles. Nate Bartles, who we are just, he is just amazing. And he's been helping us do some research. We want to give him a big shout out and a big thank you. Murder, murder.